You are listening to a Whitebridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. It's a bit of a fearful moment to stand in the pulpit. <laughs> Any pulpit, for that matter. Uh, but especially after not so many years of not preaching, a sermon's been 20 years, actually, this summer. Uh, just figured that out this morning. So... Don't take score or anything, okay? (laughs) Uh, But uh, it's not out of fear of man in particular, maybe a little bit, but uh, a desire to accurately handle the Word of God uh, this morning and to declare it clearly. Uh, And so I pray that God, through the power of His Holy Spirit, will be willing to uh, speak His truth in spite of and through this trembling servant. I also ask that you lend me a little bit of grace this morning as I will refer often to my notes and um, this thing is just a little odd to wear on your head (laughs) for the first time too. So, uh, But I'll make sure I'll try to stay on topic and make sure we get out of here by at least 12.30. So... The challenge of expeditional preaching, of working through whole books of the Bible that we practice in our churches, sometimes we reach passages that are not quite as comfortable. And as I've been preparing for literally months uh, since the church leadership asked me to take the pulpit on this Sunday, I've been wrestling with this and especially uh, concerning our uh, current times and the challenge of this passage I've found it to be rather tough, and I thank the leadership team of our church for uh, the baptism of fire of giving me this passage today, so we'll see if I'm ever invited back. Uh, Last week, Chris took us through the first 12 verses of chapter 4, and in there, we dealt with selfishness and quarreling that were being addressed to the church, and in that passage, the motives of the heart were brought to light by James, referring to the church as adulteresses, feminine. doesn't come that way across in the NIV, but it does in other translations. And it's because we are the bride of Christ. And if we are approaching God with selfish motives to spend things on our own pleasures, then we are, in effect, acting as adulteresses. Today, we're going to approach another form of pride in the form of boasting and bragging. Uh, Would you please stand with me, if you're able to, to turn to James chapter 4, verse 13 through 17, and uh, remain standing when we're done for a moment of prayer. From the NIV. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow... We will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, We will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do 
and doesn't do it, sins. Father, it is our desire, our need today to hear your heart. Let all other hearing fall deaf. Open ears that cannot hear on their own apart from your spirit. Open eyes that cannot see on their own apart from the touch of Jesus. Make room in us today for your glory and your majesty to dwell without competition. In the name of him who stands at your right hand at this very moment, our advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Amen. The young 21-year-old was pressed into service in the British Royal Navy. And as a young sailor attempting desertion, he was beaten senseless and dismissed for insubordination. His life was nothing short of a fist shaking towards heaven. Notorious for cursing and blasphemy, even among his fellow degenerates, he was pursuing a well-spun tale of an annual inheritance from a distant relative of 400 pounds sterling awaiting him in England. In today's currency, that would equal $2 million a year annually. The foul young sailor had boarded the ship, rescuing him from the coast of Africa on this false promise, and was headed home. Following the trade winds, 13 months later on the morning of March 1st, 1748, the ship left the Grand Banks of Newfoundland after the crew enjoyed a day and a half of fishing cod and packing away the extra in the ship's hold. They were headed to their home port of Liverpool, England, where they had left 18 months earlier to trade along the coast of Africa. This was a trading ship, not in the human cargo of the slavers of the day, but in search of gold, ivory, African camwood, and beeswax. For eight days, they caught strong westerly winds driving them toward home. The now 22-year-old sailor was abruptly roused from his sleep. In the wee morning hours of March 10th, to the sound of several timbers being smashed to smithereens by a freak wave and a North Atlantic gale that had come upon them in the midst of the night. Next came the dreaded cry, the ship is sinking. Immediately, the crew set their hands to the pumps while dozens of, uh, another dozen bailed with pails. The ship they feared would be doomed as it could not withstand this gale after being in the warm equatorial waters off Africa for 15 months. For those warm waters had rotted its timbers, frayed its ropes, and tattered its sails. The only thing that kept the ship from sinking that night to a watery grave was their unusual cargo, for the the African camwood and beeswax was floating in the filled cargo holds. As dawn rose, this young sailor, in consultation with the captain, made one last suggestion for shoring up the ship and against, against all hope. To which he concluded, if this will not do, the Lord have mercy on us. I was instantly struck by my own words, he wrote later. This was the first desire for mercy I had breathed for many years. Was this the maritime equivalent of foxhole religion? 
perhaps. But it was not the oaths, blasphemies, and rude rejections of God that normally poured from his lips, but rather he spoke the Lord's name with reverence and respect. Too exhausted to continue pumping, he was sent to the helm to steer the ship for the next 11 hours, the role that gave this young man convenient opportunity for reflection. That's kind of an understatement. His reflections were not encouraging. What mercy can there be for me? Coming to the conclusion that anyone who had ridiculed God and his gospel with so much profanity could not possibly receive divine salvation in his hour of need. But God. But God had other plans for this young man, and it was not to perish in the sea. To speed the story up, on the morning of April 6th, the wind moderated and changed in a favorable direction. The next day, the cry came up, Land ho! And the coast of Ireland became visible on the horizon. On April 8th, four weeks of sailing, a broken ship finally ended as her tattered sails carried her around Dundee Head and into the quiet waters of Loch Swilly. About this time, I began to know there is a God who hears and answers prayer. Have you guessed yet as to this young sailor's name? The ship was the Greyhound, and the sailor was John Newton, who later became a leading abolitionist, though as of yet, at this point, he had not even yet started his career as a slave ship captain. He became an outspoken evangelist and a sort of spiritual mentor to William Wilberforce, who for 40 years fought in the British Parliament to officially bring slavery to an end in that empire. Most famous of all for writing the most famous hymn of all, Amazing Grace, which we'll sing later. Uh, Newton's life became a living testament to the providential hand of God in truly taking and saving a wretch of a life for the purposes of God in his day. To borrow the words of Philip Yancey in the foreword to his book by the same John Newton, grace like water always flows downward to the lowest place. Later in life, reflecting back upon this particular event, Newton could so clearly see the providential hand of God keeping not only him, but the lives of most of the crew and the captain from perishing. Coincidence? No. Providence and sovereign grace of God? Oh, yeah. Newton's original plans fulfilled? Nope. The life of a humbled man directed and used by God as he opened his hands and released his future to his providential direction. Oh yeah, absolutely. You never know what can be made of a life surrendered to God. God has something to teach us today about boasting and bragging, or rather, the absence of boasting and bragging. So, let's jump right in. And if you will, just follow along with me as we walk through these five verses together. Verse 13, now listen, you who say, or is in the New American or English Standard Version, come now, now listen. James is calling to the church whom he wrote this letter to, 
which is spread across the then known world to come near, to come and listen. And so we're here today listening as a church to the reading of this letter. And if we'd started at the beginning, we'd be about the 12-minute mark. And halfway through the fourth chapter and our minds are starting to drift, perhaps our stomachs are starting to growl and we're thinking about the lunch that we need, we want to have this afternoon once I'm done at 1 o'clock. Right? Okay. So <laughs> James starts this section, now listen. Is he trying to snap our minds back to full attention? In fact, he does it again at the beginning of chapter 5. Come now, now listen. Bible writers, led by the Holy Spirit, uh, sometimes repeated words or phrases. They didn't waste words. But they did that in order to point out very important passages to us. So there must be something very important for us to hear today. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Sounds okay, doesn't it? So far? Sounds like commerce. Sounds like industry. Sounds like good planning, goal setting. I'm feeling okay about it. So far. How about you? What did he draw us back to attention for? Is he going to applaud us? Is he going to tell us, great job, good job, save for the future, invest in RSPs, find good businesses to invest in, um, give your tithes, remember to give to the poor, Thanks, James. Great advice. On the surface, it sounds like good business sense. But it masks a secular worldview that ignores God. James was probably intending this towards Christians that belong to the wealthy merchant class. So basically, you could include everybody in this room. Because if you look at the world's population, we're in the top 5% of the wealthy. Easy, maybe top 3%. And I'm sure our friends from Bolivia could vouch for that. And our team that's returning. Is this approach to life what God wants us to have? No. Instead, he walks us into the beginning of verse 14 and halts us with this question. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. Like a tractor trailer locking up its brakes on the highway, so we come to a screeching halt. In all of the planning we do in our lives, do we ever stop and acknowledge we have absolutely no idea what will happen tomorrow? We plan things as though life is guaranteed. I do it all the time. Tomorrow night, let's go see a movie. Maybe on Saturday, let's go golfing. I don't even consider the frailty of life in my day-to-day decisions. Newton didn't know what was coming on that March night. James is snapping our eyes forward, stopping us dead in our tracks, and informing us as we should already be aware. You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. We think we control the events in our lives, but we don't. We don't. It's like Jesus saying in the, in the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12, 16 to 20. 
And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded of you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? James goes on to ask us an even tougher question here in the in the next phrase, ever been asked a tough question before? I have, many times. The kind of questions that make you stop, maybe you don't even want to answer. The kind that make your palms sweat and your heart race. So here's the question, what is your life? That's what James asks us, what is your life? We don't like awkward silence, but I want you to ponder that for a moment here this morning. What is your life? The Houghton Mifflin Canadian Dictionary of the English Language. Now, that's a mouthful. (laughs) And it collects dust on our bookshelf at home. Actually defines life in 16 different ways. Don't worry, I'm not going to read them all to you. But there's a few here that are interesting. Defining life, number four in the list says, a living being, especially a person, contrasted with one no longer alive. That's an exercise in the obvious, isn't it? How about number eight? The account of a person's life, a biography. Hmm, Not bad. Number nine, human activities, relationships, and interests collectively. Everyday life. But I like this one the best. The interval between the birth or inception of an organism and its death. The interval. You ever heard of the poem by Linda Ellis, How Do You Live Your Dash? I'm just going to read two paragraphs out of it for sake of time. I read of a man who stood to speak at the funeral of a friend. He referred to the dates on her tombstone from the beginning to the end. He noted that first came her date of birth and spoke the following date with tears. But he said what mattered most of all was the dash between those years. For that dash represents all the time that she spent on earth. And now only those who loved her knew what that little line was worth. For it matters not how much we own, the cars, the house, the cash. What matters is how we live and love and how we spend our dash. Thank you. Thought-provoking, isn't it? James, however, is not calling us to define life in general. He's asking us to define our life. What, actually, it's God who's doing it. God gets very personal here. What is your life? And I'm so glad 
when the Word of God not only asks us the question, but gives us the answer. (laughs) That's even better. You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Ouch. My wife Barb and I were in Newfoundland the second week of June. Absolutely beautiful province. And this is not an ad for the tourism ministry of Newfoundland, but beautiful province. And I, if you know me, I love history. And uh, Newfoundland's got 400 years of history smattered all over it. And uh, she's gotten quite used to me when we're on vacation to slam on the brakes at every uh, historical marker that's on the road and uh, or a beautiful vista to look at and uh, and to uh, enjoy God's creation or to visit a museum. Anyway, when visiting Newfoundland, you're never far away from the Atlantic Ocean and the fog banks that will just rise up and they'll just wash up on the land and just cover everything. And then a moment later, an hour later, the wind will change and it will blow the fog banks off or the sun will come out and burn off the mist. Like a mist, so are our lives in the span of eternity. A blink and they're gone. My parents are in their mid-80s and they look back over the years and wonder where in the world has the time gone. They've enjoyed good health. and uh, But they look at that and the decades have gone like that. God reminds us here that we are but a mist. It is here for a little while and then vanishes. And I know, I know today the poignancy of this topic. And that's what makes it so challenging to stand up here today and to talk about this because of the effect it has had on our local body of believers. Most of us are painfully aware, as we've been reminded again this morning, of the challenges that people are facing. But God calls it to center stage in this passage. So we have to deal with it. Our mortal lives here on this earth are so temporary, so fleeting. Are there any guarantees as to its endurance in this human span that we call life? No, there isn't. Now, if I may, when Melanie Penner sat up here and Terry interviewed her, she said something that will stick with me the rest of my life. She said, we are all terminal. We're all terminal. We're all going to die. We just, some of us just know sooner than others. So why is God driving this point home? Well, he does it for a purpose. Verse 15, instead, instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will do this or that. Take note, the end goal And plans and business desires did not change. But the perspective changed. The attitude changed. Planning and vesting is not wrong. But arrogant self-confidence and boasting is. Now, is this just a formula or chant or a mantra that we add in front of every plan that we have? If it's the Lord's will, I'll mow the lawn today. 
It's the Lord's will. I'll pick up some milk on the way home from Safeway. No, it's not, it's not a mantra. It's not a chant. It's not a formula that we work into our sentences. It is a conscious acknowledgement of the sovereign reign of God over all. Our lives included the span of our years, the events of our days, the conversations that we have, the people we meet, the breath we breathe, the number of times our hearts are going to beat. God is in control. We are not. God is God. We are not. God directs the four winds of the earth. He is on his throne and we are residents on his footstool. Our God reigns absolute and uncontested. Proverbs 27.1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. And Job, Job, we know how he suffered. And he said, remember, O God, that my life is but a breath. A breath. My friends, we are not in control of our lives. As much as we think we are. But we do choose who will be our master and Lord. And it will either be the God who reigns or it will be us. Verse 16. James circles us back in verse 16 to the attitudes of our hearts that were on display in verse 13. But now put to descriptive words. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. The arrogance of the God-ignoring attitude in verse 13 is poignantly portrayed here in verse 16, is evil. Why? Because it refuses to acknowledge God's sovereignty and His right to claim sovereignty over our lives and plans, especially for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Boasting and bragging is wrong for it is a denial of our frailty. Boasting and bragging is wrong for it stands in the face of the sovereignty of God and elevates self. Boasting and bragging denies his eternal, absolute authority and power and ignores our brevity and frailty. What happens when we live like that? Look at verse 17. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Here once again in the Steve Morris paraphrase of verse 13. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, we will spend a year there, we will carry on business, we will make money. Where is the room for God in that statement? Where is the room for others? Arrogant boastfulness is sin. We're talking here about sins of omission, not commission. Remember the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And what did Jesus add on? 
Love your neighbor as yourself. Sins of omission emanate when I becomes the center of our lives. When we refuse to acknowledge God in our day-to-day lives, self dominates. And where self dominates, all we see is me. And we won't end up doing what God calls us to do. Like looking after orphans and widows and their distress and keeping oneself from being polluted by the world. So, this brings us to the practical application of this message. So, what now? How does this work out in our day-to-day living? What does it look like to acknowledge God's sovereignty and the brevity of life from day-to-day? The obvious question you may be asking of the passage is, Steve, is it wrong? Is it wrong to go into business? Is it wrong to make a profit? Is it wrong to be resourceful? Is it wrong to invest in the future? No, of course not. No, of course not. In fact, if you didn't do that, you might be included in the parables of Jesus warning about the lazy and the foolish. Because we don't know how much time we have on this earth, only God knows the number of our days and the plans um, and we, we, sorry, we must plan. We must plan as though we're going to live very long lives. Be good stewards of what's entrusted to us. However, I think you probably already understand this, and I don't want to spend time on obvious points. So I want to quickly share with you three lessons that God's been driving into my head over the past while. And I would describe them under the banner of, a banner of living life with open hands. Living life with open hands tells us something very important about the past, the present, and the future in view of God's sovereignty and the brevity of life. First, the, the past cannot be changed. Release it. The past cannot be changed. Release it. So often, and right now you might be thinking, I've blown it. (laughs) I've lived a life without acknowledging God and ran my life like a bull in a china shop. Well, whatever it might be that you have in your past, we all have past. It can bind us and grip us and strangle the life out of living. But I want you to hear some good news about the past. For it was on that cross that all my sin and all your sin was nailed. And upon that cross is a receipt that says, paid in full. Not only was my sin and your sin nailed to that cross, but Jesus bore it upon himself. Not only did he bear it upon himself, he became my sin. He became your sin. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to 
be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. In his book, Growing in Christ, J.I. Packer writes of a man who, distressed about his sin, wrote to Martin Luther, the reformer who himself had suffered long agonies over this problem, replied, learn to know Christ and him crucified. Learn to sing to him and say, Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness. I am your sin. You took on you what was mine. You set on me what was yours. You became what you were not, that I might become what I was not. What an exchange! My sin for his righteousness. Link up with Jesus, the living Lord by faith, and this great exchange is fulfilled. Through Jesus' atoning death, God accepts you as righteous and cancels your sin. This is justification, forgiveness, and peace. We who are in Christ carry the burden of sin no longer. The record of the past, even that angry outburst of breakfast this morning or the or the rude statement to the store clerk yesterday or the lustful thought on the drive to church this morning all of that is wiped clean if you are in Christ there is no charge that the enemy can bring against God's elect in the court of our God it is finished so let go Let go of the past. Open your hands and come to the place where you finally say, like the Apostle Paul, forgetting what is behind, I press on. Perhaps this is the place where we can echo the same words as John Newton, who said, two things I know, that I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. Secondly, the future may never come, Surrender it. Our mortal lives are so uncertain. You do not know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Now, I'm not a physician. I'm not a physician. But if my heart stopped right now, I figure I maybe have 30 seconds of consciousness give or take. And then four or five minutes, my brain would die, my body would die, and I would pass into eternity. So, what do I have promised to me for life? It's really the next 30 seconds. Think about that. 30 seconds, all that's guaranteed. It's not to be meant morbid, by the way. It's just just a wake-up. If you feel the pulse in your wrist or in your neck, just think about that. Life pulsing through your veins. Every beat, a gift from God. Every breath you breathe is a loan of life. God has been teaching me that at any moment He can call it to an end. It's His choice. 
We don't know when. For some, it could be today. (laughs) For some, it could be next week. For some, it might be 80 years from now. We don't know. The only caveat, I would say, to the fact that I could promise you that every one of us is going to die, but the only caveat to that is the second coming of Christ. And, oh, oh, may he return soon. The point being, hold the future with open hands. Hold it with open hands. It doesn't matter how tight you grasp, you cannot add one day to it. The past cannot be changed. Release it. The future is not promised more than 30 seconds away for our mortal lives. So release it. Release your plans for the future. So what are we left with? What is the third lesson that God was teaching me? And that's in the present. Be faithful. In the present. Be faithful. That is all He is asking me to do. That is all that He is asking you to do. To be faithful in the moment, the here and now. Take one step at a time. As the worship team comes, remember this. That the past is covered at the cross. We need to leave it there. The future 30 seconds is all that is guaranteed. So I must surrender my plans. Surrender our future to the Lord. He wants us to be faithful in this moment and to be teachable. Jesus wants us to love the Lord, our God, with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. And to love our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom and to acknowledge that the past cannot be changed and to release it to you, to acknowledge that the future belongs to you alone and to surrender all our plans to you and in the present, O God, find us faithful. Teach us to live with open hands. Amen.